Section 16 of Prison Memoirs of an Anarchist by Alexander Berkman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kwame Ganov, youtube.com forward slash c forward slash k-w-a-m-e-g-e-n-o-v-v. Persecution. Section 1. Suffering and ever-present danger are quick teachers. In the three months of penitentiary life, I have learned many things. I doubt whether the vague terrors pictured by my inexperience were more dreadful than the actuality of prison existence. In one respect, especially, the reality is a source of bitterness and constant irritation. Notwithstanding all its terrors, perhaps because of them, I had always thought of prison as a place where, in a measure, nature comes into its own. Social distinctions are abolished, artificial barriers destroyed. No need of hiding one's thoughts and emotions. One could be his real self, shedding all hypocrisy and artifice at the prison gates. But how different is this life? It is full of deceit, sham, and faryism, an aggravated counterpart of the outside world. The flatterer, the backbiter, the spy, these find here a rich soil. The ill will of a guard portends disaster, to be averted only by truckling and flattery, and servility fawns for the reward of an easier job. The dissembling soul in stripes winds his conversation into the pleased ears of the Christian ladies, taking care he be not surprised without tract or Bible, and presently simulated piety secures a pardon, for the angels rejoice at the sinner's return to the fold. It sickens me to witness these scenes. The officers make the alternative quickly apparent to the new inmate. To protest against injustice is unavailing and dangerous. Yesterday I witnessed in the shop a characteristic incident a fight between Johnny Davis and Jack Bradford, both recent arrivals and mere boys. Johnny, a manly-looking fellow, works on a knitting machine a few feet from my table. Opposite him is Jack, whose previous experience in a reformatory has put him wise as he expresses it. My three-month stay has taught me the art of conversing by an almost imperceptible motion of the lips. In this manner I learned from Johnny that Bradford is stealing his product, causing him repeated punishment for shortage in the task. Hoping to terminate the thefts, Johnny complained to the overseer, though without accusing Jack. But the guard ignored the complaint, and continued to report the youth. Finally, Johnny was sent to the dungeon. Yesterday morning, he returned to work. The change in the rosy-cheeked boy was startling. Pale and hollow-eyed, he walked with a weak, halting step. As he took his place at the machine, I heard him say to the officer, Mr. Corson, please put me somewhere else. Why so? the guard asked. I can't make the task here. I'll make it on another machine. Please, Mr. Coson. Why can't you make it here? I'm missing socks. Ho ho, playing the old game, are ya? Want to go to the hole again, eh? I couldn't stand the hole again, Mr. Coson. Swear to God I couldn't. But my socks is missing here. Missing hell. Who's stealing your box, eh? Don't come with no such bluff. Nobody can't steal your socks while I'm around. You go to work now, and you better make the task, understand? Late in the afternoon, when the count was taken, Johnny proved eighteen pairs short. Bradford was over. I saw Mr. Coson approach Johnny. Eh, thirty machine thirty, he shouted. You all made the task, eh? Put your coat and cap on. Fatal words. They meant immediate report to the deputy, and the inevitable sentence to the dungeon. Oh, Mr. Coson, the youth pleaded. It ain't my fault. So help me God it isn't. It ain't, eh? Whose fault is it? Mine? 
Johnny hesitated. His eyes sought to the ground, then wandered toward Bradford, who studiously avoided the look. I can't squeal, he said quietly. Oh, hell, you ain't got nothing to squeal. Get your coat and cap. Johnny passed the night in the dungeon. This morning he came up, his cheeks more sunken, his eyes more hollow. With desperate energy he worked. He toiled steadily, furiously, his gaze fastened upon the growing pile of hosiery. Occasionally he shot a glance at Bradford, who, confident of the officer's favor, met the look of hatred with a sly winking of the left eye. Once Johnny, without pausing in the work, slightly turned his head in my direction. I smiled encouragingly, and at that same instant I saw Jack's hand slip across the table and quickly snatch a handful of Johnny's stockings. The next moment a piercing shriek threw the shop into commotion. With difficulty they tore away the infuriated boy with the prostrate Bradford. Both prisoners were taken to the deputy for trial, with Senior Officer Cosson as the sole witness. Impatiently I awaited the result. Through the open window I saw the overseer return. He entered the shop, a smile about the corners of his mouth. I resolved to speak to him when he passed by. Mr. Cosson, I said, with simulated respectfulness, may I ask you a question? Why, certainly, Burke. I won't eat you. Fire away. What have they done with the boys? Johnny got ten days in the hole. Pretty stiff, eh? You see, he started the fight, so he won't have to make the task. Oh, I'm next to him, all right. They can't fool me so easy, can they, Burke? Well, I should say not, Mr. Cosson. Did you see how this fight started? No, but Johnny admitted he struck Bradford first. That's enough, you know. Brad will be back in the shop tomorrow. I got him off easy, see? He's a good worker. Always makes more than the task. He'll just lose his supper. Guess he can stand it. Ain't much to lose, is there, Burke? No, not much, I assented. But, Mr. Cosson, it was all Bradford's fault. How so? the guard demanded. He has been stealing Johnny's socks. You didn't see him do it. Yes, Mr. Cosson, I saw him this... Look here, Burke. It's all right. Johnny is no good anyway. He's too fresh. You better say nothing about it, see? My word goes with the deputy. The terrible injustice preys on my mind. Poor Johnny is already the fourth day in the dreaded dungeon. His third time, too, and yet absolutely innocent. My blood boils at the thought of the damnable treatment and the officer's perfidy. It is my duty as a revolutionist to take the part of the persecuted. Yes, I will do so. But how proceed in the manner? Complaint against Mr. Coson would in all likelihood prove futile, and the officer, informed of my action, will make life miserable for me. His authority in the shop is absolute. The several plans I resolve in my mind do not prove, upon closer examination, feasible. Considerations of personal interest struggle against my sense of duty. The vision of Johnny in the dungeon, his vacant machine, and Bradford's smile of triumph keep the accusing conscience awake till silence grows unbearable. I determine to speak to the deputy warden at the first opportunity. Several days pass. Often I am assailed by doubts. Is it advisable to mention the matter to the deputy? It cannot benefit Johnny. It will involve me in trouble. But the next moment I feel ashamed of my weakness. I call to mind the much-admired hero of my youth, the celebrated Mishkin. With an overpowering sense of my own unworthiness, I review the brave deeds of the Hippolyte Nikich. What a man! Single-handed he essayed to liberate Chernevsky from prison. Ah, the curse of poverty! 
but for that mishkin would have succeeded and the great inspirer of the youth of russia would have been given back to the world i dwell on the details of the almost successful escape mishkin's fight with the pursuing cossacks his arrest and his remarkable speech in court sentenced to ten years of hard labor in the siberian mines he defied the russian tyrant by his funeral oration at the grave of domeski his boldness resulting in an additional fifteen years of katorga minutely i follow his repeated attempts to escape the transfer of redoubtable prisoner to the petroplavska fortress and thence to the terrible schusselberg prison where mishkin braved death by avenging the maltreatment of his comrades on a high government official ah thus acts the revolutionist and i yes i am decided no danger shall seal my lips against outrage and injustice at last an opportunity is at hand the deputy enters the shop tall and gray slightly stooping with head carried forward he resembles a wolf following the trail mr mcpain one moment please yes i think johnny davis is being punished innocently you think hmm hmm and who is this innocent johnny davis his fingers drum impatiently on the table he measures me with mocking suspicious eyes machine thirty deputy ah yes machine thirty hmm hmm ready davis hmm he had a fight the other man stole his stockings i saw it mr mcpain so so and why hmm hmm did you see it my good man you confess then hmm you were not hmm attending to your own work that is bad hmm very bad mr Coulson. the guard hastens to him mr Coulson, this man has made a hmm a charge against you prisoner don't interrupt me hmm what is your number a seven mr Coulson, a seven makes a hmm complaint against the officer hmm in charge of this shop please hmm note it down both draw aside, conversing in low tones. The words kicker, his kid, reach my ears. The deputy nods at the overseer, his steely eyes fastened on me in hatred. Section 2 I feel helpless, friendless. The consolation of Wingy's cheerful spirit is missing. My poor friend is in trouble. From snatches of conversation in the shop, I have pierced together the story. Dutch Adams, a third-timer in the deputy's favorite stool pigeon, had lost his month's allowance of tobacco on a prize-fight bet. He demanded that Wingy, who is stakeholder, share the spoils with him. Infuriated by refusal, Dutch reported my friend for gambling. The unexpected search of Wingy's cell discovered the tobacco, thus apparently substantiating the charge. Wingy was sent to the dungeon. But after the expiration of five days, my friend failed to return to his old cell, and I soon learned that he has been ordered to the solitary confinement for refusing to betray the men who had trusted him. The fate of Wingy preys on my mind. My poor kind friend is breaking down under the effects of the dreadful sentence. This morning, chancing to pass his cell, I hailed him, but he did not respond to my greeting. Perhaps he did not hear me, I thought. Impatiently, I waited for the noon return to the block. Hello, Wingy, I called. He stood at the door, intently peering between the bars. He stared at me coldly, with blank, expressionless eyes. "'Who are you?' he whimpered, brokenly. Then he began to babble. Suddenly, the terrible truth dawned on me. "'My poor, poor friend, the first to speak a kind word to me. He's gone mad.'" End of Section 16